Amen. Amen. Who said amen? Amen. Amen. The great and glorious reality of our most precious Christian faith, a reality that is available to each and every person who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation, to each and every person who turns to Jesus in faith and in trust, is the forgiveness of sin along with the establishment of a life-giving relationship with the God of heaven and earth. An eternal life-giving relationship with the God of heaven and earth. A relationship of peace and harmony with God. A familial relationship whereby you and I become his sons and his daughters, and he becomes our father. When we turn to Jesus in faith, And we turn to him in trust, repenting of our sins and committing ourselves to him as Lord and Savior. The insurmountable obstacle that once kept us from relationship with God, being our wicked, our wicked, filthy, and disgusting sin, is dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we who believe, who truly believe, are cleansed, completely cleansed, and completely forgiven. This is the great message of the gospel. Jesus forgives sins and reconciles all who truly believe in him with God. And the results of this true faith is reconciliation with God, our eternal life with God, and our eternal enjoyment of God. What a beautiful reality. And in Matthew's, Matthew chapters 8 and 9 of his gospel, he's been taking the readers on a hike up what I affectionately call Mount Authority. And he reveals in ever-ascending measure the authority of Christ over a, seeming, a number of seemingly chaotic and untamable barriers and impediments to life and life to the full. And so first... Back at the beginning of Matthew chapter 8, we encounter a leper. And there, Jesus reveals his authority over physical illness. You see, in this day, leprosy was an incurable disease. An incurable disease that led to societal exclusion, being an outcast, being marginalized on the outskirts of society. And one day, as Jesus descended from the mountain after preaching the greatest sermon in the history of humanity, a leper came to him. And that leper knelt down before Jesus and wondered out loud if Jesus might make him clean, if Jesus might heal him of the affliction and restore him to life in the community of God's people once again. And Jesus, as we will see at the end of Matthew, when he sums it all up with this pinnacle statement, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, stretched out his hand, touched the man, and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leper was cleansed of his illness. Jesus then revealed his authority over sickness Jesus there revealed his authority over sickness with his word and with his touch. 
And then after that, he entered into Capernaum. As he was doing so, a centurion walked up to him, approached him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, and he is suffering terribly. And Jesus, being the gracious Lord that he is, offered to go to the house of the centurion in order to heal the centurion's servant. But the centurion saw something in Jesus. He, he recognized something about Jesus. He noted an authority in Christ to the degree that he said, Lord, you do not need to come to my house, but just merely say the word. And by your word and your word alone, I, you will heal him. And Jesus marveled at this man's faith, a faith that he had not yet encountered among any of the Israelites uh, that he had spoken to. And so Jesus spoke the word without actually going to the centurion's home and his servant was healed at that very moment. And we have no idea how far the centurion's house actually was from Jesus at that point. Could have been one mile, could have been a hundred miles. But the word of Jesus alone is authoritative over sickness from whatever distance. And again, Matthew keeps us going up the, up the, the mount of, of authority and he reveals uh, Christ's authority over sickness and disease without actually even having to speak a word but merely by his touch. This, is happens when, this happened when Jesus went to Peter's house and his mother-in-law was lying there seriously afflicted with a fever, a life-threatening fever. And Jesus, without any word of command, touched Peter's mother-in-law's hand And immediately the fever left her and she rose and began serving him. The touch of Christ is authoritative over sickness. And it's not just physical sickness that Jesus possesses authority over. But Matthew now scales us higher up Mount Authority in telling us of the power of Christ, of the authority of Christ over the physical creation itself. And on this occasion, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples in order to cross over to the other side. And while in the boat, a seismic storm of menacing proportions arose and started whipping the boat all over the place and terrifying the disciples who all thought that their life was about to end. And they called out to Jesus and Jesus stood up rebuked them, and then rebuked the storm, and upon his word, the storm immediately ceased, and all was completely calm. And Matthew doesn't stop there, but he ascends even higher up Authority Mountain when he records an interaction that we looked at last week between Jesus and two demon-possessed men. See, Jesus is not only authoritative over sickness, not only authoritative over the physical realm and creation, but he's also authoritative over the spiritual realms. The demonic realm cowers in fear before the Lord Jesus Christ, falling down before him and begging him to delay their time of torment. And they plead with Jesus for permission to be sent into a herd of pigs. You remember this, right? These are the two demon-possessed men that no one could bind with chains, no one could subdue. These two men ran up to Jesus, bowed before him, and recognized his complete authority over them. Christ is authoritative over the spiritual realms. Christ is authoritative over sickness. Christ is authoritative over the physical realms. And now we reach the dizzying heights the panoramic vista of Mount Authority. 
I don't know if any of you have ever taken drives up to northern Ontario. When I say northern Ontario, I mean like northern Ontario, you know, like 10, 11, 12, 13 hours up the Trans-Canada Highway, right? There are times in that drive, as you're driving, you're going up and up and up and up and up and up these hills, and then eventually you reach the crest of the hill, and right out there before you is this most unbelievably beautiful picture of Lake Superior with all of the trees and this whole vista that is open to you, and it's one of the most beautiful sights. You get maybe, it happens maybe two or three times on the drive, one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. This is what Matthew has done here. He's brought us up and up and up and up and up the authority mountain and now we see the panoramic vista before us as we breathe in the crisp fresh and invigorating air of christ's authority as matthew records now for us in our text this morning an instance of christ's authority to do the impossible to do the unthinkable and that is to forgive us our sins and this is the first time in the Gospels that we are Christ's authority to forgive sin is revealed. And it comes on the heels of his departure from the region of the Gadarenes just in, at the end of Matthew 8. And we see in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came into his own city. If you remember, all the city folk had come out to meet Jesus after he healed the demon-possessed men. But instead of celebrating the liberation of these men, they begged him to leave. And so after hearing the pleas of the Gadarenes that he leave, Jesus stepped into a boat and traveled back across the sea to his own city. See, the text says that? To his own city. His own city, as both Matthew and Mark make clear at this point, is Capernaum. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, we read, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And in Mark's recounting of this same narrative that we're looking at today, in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, When he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And so as we look at Matthew's accounts of these stories that Mark and Luke also recount, we will note that Matthew tends to be much briefer than Mark and Luke in his recounting. For example, in, when we looked at last week's demon-possessed men, Matthew is far more concise, and he leaves out some of the details that Mark recounts. For example, you know the story of the demon-possessed men, um, but you know when, that from, Math, from Mark and from Luke that Jesus asks the men their name. You remember that? What is your name? And the response comes back, My name is Legion, for we are many. Matthew leaves that little detail out. And similarly, in this account of the healing of the paralyzed man, Matthew prefers to compress and to condense the account, leaving out some major details in favor of amplifying the main point without any ambiguity. And this is the main point. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's the main point. So as we look through this text, we're going to see five movements in this text. First, faith in action. Second, sins forgiven. Third, accusations leveled. Fourth, authority confirmed. And fifth, the people amazed. I will repeat those as we go. And as we look at verse 2, we see, number one, faith in action. Faith in action. Look at verse 2. And behold, 
Some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, now it says when Jesus saw their faith, what faith? Again, Matthew's quite succinct, leaving out the details that explain what it was that Jesus saw in these people and in the paralytic that led him to see a, 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 a high degree of faith. Matthew and Luke, however, or Mark and Luke, however, give us the details. So after crossing back over the sea from Gadara to Capernaum, Jesus spent a few days at home relatively undisturbed. Eventually, however, the news that Jesus had returned started to uh, gather large crowds to the house. And they gathered in the house, and they gathered around the house, and as many people as could fit that stuffed themselves in the house and jammed themselves around Jesus to the point that every window and every door and every entrance and every exit of the house was surrounded by those eager to hear Jesus teach and eager to experience his healing power. And along with the crowds of regular folk also came the Pharisees and the scribes. And they came, Pharisees and scribes came from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. You see, this was no small group that was gathered around the house on this day. It was a serious crowd that was extending outward from the house. As the crowds grew and extended further outward, four men arrived carrying a stretcher on which lay a paralyzed man. And they hoped to set this man in front of Jesus They hoped to set him right before Jesus so that Jesus might heal him. But as they drew closer and closer to the house, they noticed the rapidly increasing crowds. And it was clear to them that there was no way through these throngs of people, no way to get the man into the house to set him in front of Jesus by using conventional, regular means. Perhaps they might have tried yelling and pleading with the people to move. Paralyzed man coming through! Paralyzed man coming through! Maybe they might have asked the swarms of onlookers to back out of the house. Can you make room? Can everybody just back out? Everybody step backward, backward, backward! Or maybe they looked and assumed that the effort would be fruitless. Either way, nothing was going to keep these men from getting to Jesus. They had come this far, and Jesus was so close... They were going to do whatever they needed to set this paralytic in front of Jesus. Why? Because they knew. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus had both the power and the authority to heal the man. And so they went to whatever lengths necessary to accomplish the goal of gaining an audience with Jesus. And so the four men clambered through the crowds and hopped up onto the roof and four men holding four ropes hoisted their friend up to the roof. Now, if you think about it, that's actually a rather irresponsible act. Seems a little bit dangerous to be doing something like that, right? I mean, I go up on my roof every year to clean out the eaves troughs. And when I go up on my roof to clean out the eaves troughs, I try to make sure every part of me is somehow connected to the roof. I am afraid of falling off. It's dangerous to be up there. And if I don't take it easy, it's irresponsible of me. I mean, I've got a wife, a wife and I've got kids to feed. Can't be falling off roofs, right? But here's four men ascending to a roof and then pulling up a stretcher 
onto that roof. And why do they do that? So that they can start the process of taking tiles off the roof and removing sections of the roof to create an opening so that they could lower the man through the roof into the house in front of Jesus. You can imagine the scene, right? As the troop of onlookers in the house paying close attention to Jesus as he's teaching, start noticing debris falling all over them and dust ascending or dust descending upon them. Then the rays of light start to shine through, rays of sunshine that were once blocked by, you know, the roof that has now been taken off the house. And along with the rubble falling in, a stretcher, a stretcher slowly descends on which lies a paralyzed man. And if you looked up, you see four men, one at each corner, gripping the rope and letting this stretcher slowly descend into the room. And Jesus looks up and sees and recognizes all the effort that these men have put into setting this paralytic in front of him. Jesus looked at these men and knew that they had every intention of making sure that this paralytic would come, to his pre- come into his presence. No obstacles would halt their striving. Jesus looked at them and understood their complete trust in, this, in the fact that this Jesus had it in his power to heal this man. And in response to their faith, Jesus turned and he looked at the paralytic and he said to him, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. First we saw faith in action. Now we see sins forgiven. As Jesus looked at the paralytic again and said, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we don't know much about this paralytic, except for the fact that he was indeed a paralytic. And I don't know how he felt about his particular ailment. I mean, sometimes in our lives, when things get a little bit difficult, or when we get, a, we get sick, or, or we face difficulties in life, we can begin to dwell on those difficulties and dwell on those hardships. We can start to ask ourselves, why would God allow or permit such things to afflict me in my life? Why do I have an empty bank account? Why am I going through sickness? Why am I enduring these things? The paralytic might very well have said much the same thing. But think about it for a second. Would this paralytic have turned to Christ without the sufferings that had been brought on by this condition? Now, we can't say for sure, but we do know that oftentimes it is the hardships that we face in life that bring us closer to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the pains that we suffer that drop us to our knees in prayer before our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the trials and the tribulations that we endure that cause us to fight and to overcome every obstacle in our way to get to Jesus Christ for an audience with Him. When, time, when times are easy and life is comfortable, we can all too easily forget Christ and begin to just go with the flow of life. Sometimes pain and turmoil in life is the gift of God to you because he knows that our greatest joy, your greatest joy, my greatest delight is connection with and to him. And left to our own devices, we are prone to wander, aren't we? 
We are prone to leave the God that we love. And so sometimes the pains in this life, the pains that we so desperately hope for deliverance from, are actually the engine that bring us to Christ. And from there, we are gifted with something far greater than simple deliverance from those physical pains and trials and and torments, but we are instead reconciled by God, to God, by grace, through faith in Christ. That's what happened to the paralytic. It would seem that the paralytic was brought to Jesus for the sole purpose, or at least the first and foremost, for physical healing. This paralytic thought that he knew what he needed most. But Jesus, our great and glorious Lord, knows what this man needs above all else. He knows what every single one of us needs above all else. Because every single person in the world suffers from an affliction that is far more devastating than your physical sufferings. From your trials and your torments. And Jesus made it clear here as he forgives this man of his sin. Sin is the ultimate problem. Jesus is the ultimate answer. To absolutely everything, Christ is the ultimate answer. And I want you to just keep this in your mind because we're living in a culture that's trying to muddy these waters. Never forget Sin is the problem. Jesus is the answer. And so as culture tries to tell you, nope, society is the problem and government laws are the answer. No, don't fall for it. Sin is the problem. Jesus is the answer. When people say things like systemic and structural problems and failures are the problem and so government overhauls and societal overhauls are the answer, no, you step back and you say, no, that's not the main problem. Sin is the problem and Jesus is the answer. That's always the case. Sin is the ultimate problem. Jesus is the perfect answer. And while this man's paralysis is not said to be the direct result of his sin, of his own sin, we know that sin as a general reality in creation is the root cause of all suffering in the world. All pain, all difficulty, all suffering can be traced back to sin's existence in this created realm. This man's paralysis, as well as all the troubles you will face in your life, are the results of life in a fallen, corrupt world. But also, there are times when your, issue, your difficulties will be the, the, the direct result of your own sin. This is the great problem confronting humanity. Unforgiven sin. And we can so often confuse this fact and think that there are other things that are a bigger problem than our sin. This paralyzed man, again, most likely thought that his greatest need was physical healing. But what he, what all of us require is far greater. We need spiritual healing. We need cleansing. We need atonement. We need forgiveness. We need God's forgiveness more than absolutely anything else. Which is why it's so frustrating to me when I see charlatans parading around on TV and radio claiming to speak for God and they promise primarily physical blessings as the great work of God in your life. They focus on the secondary issue and forget the primary issue 
But know this, deliverance from trials and difficulties of life are secondary, even superfluous when compared to the problem of sin and the division that it causes between you and your Lord. But take heart. It's for this reason that Jesus turned to the paralytic on this day and said to him, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Take heart. Be of good cheer. Take courage. Have assurance. The result of your faith, my son, is forgiveness of your sins. And notice, you see it, right? Jesus called the man, my son. This is a term of endearment. It's a term indicating the care that one possesses for their children. It's a term that indicates that this man was now a member of the household of God. And throughout Scripture, you will note, not everybody is a son of the Lord. Only those whose sins are forgiven. We see something similar later on in this chapter after the woman with the issue of blood touches the fringe of Christ's garment. And he looked at her and he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Again, it's a term of endearment, a term of tender affection, a term that a loving parent might give to a beloved child. And why can Jesus tell these to take heart, to be of good cheer, to take courage, to be assured? How can Jesus call this man a son? How can Jesus call that woman a daughter? Because their sins are forgiven. This is Matthew's main focus in this text. The Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, possesses authority to forgive your sins. The paralytic's sins and offenses against God were pardoned. The sins that estranged him from the Lord were removed. And this is the primary reason, the pinnacle reason, for Christ's taking on flesh, making his dwelling among us. He didn't come to earth primarily to heal us of our physical problems, but to bring about the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. And so Jesus told the paralytic, be assured, my son, your sins are forgiven. And so the question I ask you is, are you assured that your sins are forgiven? Are you courageous in this fact? Or is the guilt of your sin eating you up? Have you truly turned to Jesus Christ in faith? Or have you counted the cost of following the Lord and placed the totality of your life in his hand? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Because if you have, listen to me, take heart, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And listen, this is what we call a propositional truth, meaning it is a statement of absolute fact, meaning this never changes. If you truly love and believe in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, and that fact always remains the same. Because there are times when you will feel as though your sins aren't forgiven. But the truths of God's word and the veracity of his pronouncements do not shift or change with your feelings. During those times when you feel like you're a disappointment to the Lord or when the enemy throws your numerous sins and numerous failures into your face and leads you to doubt your forgiveness... Turn to the words and the promises and the rock-solid assurance of Christ's word, which are always true. If you trust Christ, if you truly believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Take 
heart, sons, and daughters. And as we move from this to the next section, you start to see here that at Gadara, when Jesus was over on the other side of the lake, the city folk, rather than praise God, rather than celebrate the liberty and the healing of the formerly possessed demon men, they begged Jesus to leave their region. And in like manner, the scribes and the Pharisees who were sitting around watching Jesus and listening to Jesus, when they heard the pronouncement, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven, they did not stand up and say, yes, can mine be forgiven too? Nope. Instead of celebration, they leveled accusations against Jesus in their own hearts. Faith in action, sins forgiven, and now thirdly, accusations leveled. Look at verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. This is a serious accusation. The Levitical law makes it quite clear what the penalty for blasphemy, a penalty that was still enacted during the times of Jesus when he walked on the earth in the first century, actually was. We read it in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 10 to 16. Read it with me. Now an Israelite's woman, an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name. The name is in capitals there. It is another way of saying Yahweh, the Lord. Blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin." Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. These are some pretty serious consequences for this most heinous crime against the name or against the Lord. This was the accusation that would be leveled against Jesus by the religious leaders. The, this is the accusation that led them to pronounce the death sentence upon him. We read this in Matthew 26, starting in verse 63. When Jesus stood before the high priest Caiaphas, we read that the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God to tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? 
You have heard, you have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Now, why are these words of Jesus in the healing of the paralytic considered blasphemy by the scribes? Mark and Luke shed some light on this for us. As Mark wrote in chapter 2, speaking to the same um, narrative, Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Luke also records in 521, speaking to the same story, the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Did you hear it? In pronouncing the sins of the paralytic forgiven, Jesus laid claim to an authority. Jesus laid claim to a right, a divine prerogative that belongs to God and God alone. Jesus made a definitive statement as to his identity. He himself properly possesses the authority of God. And we know this looking back. We know that Jesus is God come in the flesh. But here, this simple statement, your sins are forgiven, if Jesus were not God, this statement constitutes the rankest and most wicked of blasphemies. However, Christ had already revealed up to this point his divine authority, his divine authority over disease, over creation, over the demonic. He is in fact God, and he does in fact possess the authority to forgive sins, and that is good news for you. Take heart, son and or daughter, your sins are forgiven. Religious, these religious leaders took the crime of blasphemy quite seriously, and they consistently searched for and rooted out, rooted out blasphemy because it was, it is, a most serious sin. So just as a hiatus, let's... Uh, explain this a little bit. Blasphemy is the dishonoring or the bringing down of the Lord in one's speech. Blasphemy occurs in so many ways. So there's a few examples for you. It is blasphemous for a person to claim to speak for God when they do not actually speak for God. And this is actually quite common in our day, more common than you might think. As a number of people say things like, and I've heard them say it to me, and I, uh, it always makes me cringe. I have a word for the Lord from I have a word from the Lord for you. Or the Lord told me this. This is truly cringeworthy to me. It it sends that like shiver down my spine when I hear people say that. If somebody comes to you and says, I have a word from the Lord for you, and the next words out of their mouth are not Scripture itself, it's blasphemy. God speaks to people clearly, directly, and without ambiguity in His Word. Blasphemy also occurs when one claims to themselves rights and privileges that belong or that God owns as His own. So here's an example. When you or I, this is one that is going to hit all of us, when we take vengeance on another person, 
in whatever way, shape, or form, whether it's unforgiveness, whether it's anger, whether it's passive-aggressive tendencies, whether it's holding on to bitterness, whatever it is, these are all acts of vengeance against someone for a wrong or a perceived wrong that they have done to you. To take vengeance on another person in whatever form is blasphemy. Because as the Apostle Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 12, vengeance is a divine right. The Lord says it in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. What he says here, what he is saying here is, it belongs to me. It is my peculiar right because only the Lord can mete out justice or vengeance with perfect justice. And so when we act vengefully, we ascribe to ourselves or perform ourselves an act that rightfully belongs to God and to God alone. As though we ourselves were God. That's blasphemy. This is why it's so important that we forgive For as long as you hold on to vengeance and bitterness, you are blaspheming the name of your Lord. Blasphemy also occurs when we speak of God in flippant, careless, and irreverent ways. When we speak of Him as though He were like us. Think of if we... When we think of him as though he were fickle and selfish and ever cha- like ever changing human, uh, the ever-changing human being. This type of blasphemy tends to lead to uh, an increase in sinful conduct as we start to view God in lower and lower and lower and lower ways. When we see God as high and lofty and authoritative and holy, there is less sin, like we, there's less outward sin in those instances because we fear the Lord. But as we bring him down, sin increases and immorality increases. And David in Psalm 51 shows this to be true. In Psalm 51, he gives us the uh, picture of what a low view of the Lord, a careless view of the Lord leads to. Look at Psalm 51, starting in verse 17. You hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, if, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's sons. These things you have done, and I have been silent. Now, what is the reason for them doing all of these things? Look at what he says next. You thought that I was one like yourself. That's blasphemy. And the Lord said, continuing, But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Blasphemy also occurs when we bring disrepute to the Lord. When we bring disrepute to His glory, His holiness, His authority, and His character. When we look at His works as revealed to us in Scripture and speak of them in a degrading manner. When we subject His glorious person and His glorious works to the lens of our own preferences and judge them rather than standing in awe and wonder at His perfect works, His perfect plan, and His perfect will. When we cast doubt on the goodness of God's revealed will, we blaspheme. Taking the Lord's name in vain is blaspheming. Using the name of the Lord to achieve your own wicked ends is blaspheming. 
There is also, so these are all direct blasphemies, right? Blasphemies that we do either by ascribing something that the Lord has said is his own to ourselves or speaking in ways that are irreverent, careless, flippant, or anything like that. But there is also an indirect life of blaspheming as well. When others blaspheme the Lord because of our sinful lives and our sinful lifestyles. It's for this reason that Paul counseled Christians to take great care in our conduct, great care in the way we live our lives so that we give cause, no cause to others to speak blasphemously against God or his word. So I can pull out a number of examples, but there's a couple here that we'll look at. 1 Timothy 6.1, Paul is speaking to bond servants. Bond servants are those who'd sold themselves into the service of another. And he said this to them in 1 Timothy 6 verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of honor. The question is then why? Why do we regard masters as worthy of honor? Paul goes on, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. When you work, honor your employer, work hard so that the name of the God that you represent in your workplace and the truth of the God that you represent is not blasphemed by said employer due to your disrespect, due to your terrible work ethic, or due to your slandering of your boss. Another example of this is located in Paul's letter to Titus. When he wrote to the women in the church, saying in chapter 2, I think it's verse 15, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Why? Why are older women and younger women to act in this way? Paul continues, that the word of God may not be reviled. We also read of hypocrisy being a cause for blasphemy. Hypocrisy among those who claim to love and to serve God. As Paul wrote to those who thought of themselves as instructors or leaders or teachers for others in the ways of God, but who didn't live out what they told others. Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verse 21, You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that, One must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So far from blaspheming God's name directly or causing the blaspheming of God's name by our sinful lives, our hypocrisy, We are to do everything possible to obey the Lord in life, to keep others from blaspheming and reviling the word of God. Our lives are to be lived in accordance with God's word in full knowledge of his majesty, his wonder, his rule, his authority. We live as those hoping to inspire the praise of God from the lips of others, not the blaspheming of God. So, as Jesus taught in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, sometimes, sometimes, oftentimes, 
People might respond to your good works in the same way that the scribes responded to Jesus right here, with insulting accusations. But we keep honoring the Lord in obedience and praise to his great name, knowing that our King, our Lord Jesus Christ, is truly authoritative, that he is who he said he is, and that obedience to the Lord will not lead to uh, it will lead to blaspheming sometimes, but that's not what you have to worry about. The Lord will take vengeance on that, right? And as we look at our text, had Jesus declared this paralytic's sin forgiven as a regular man, had Jesus not possessed the authority to actually forgive this man's sin, he would have blasphemed. A sin deserving of death. And so that we know that Jesus is authoritative over um, sin, and that he forgives sin or possesses the authority to forgive sin, we see that authority confirmed in verse 4. So we've seen faith in action, sins forgiven, accusations leveled, and now fourthly, authority confirmed. And look at verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? So here the identity of our Lord Jesus Christ is put on display in his reading of the hearts, of his, in his knowledge of the very thoughts of the scribes that were observing and listening to him on this day. Jesus knew the deliberations, he knew the considerations that were turning about in the minds and the hearts of these religious leaders, and he put them on display for everybody to see. It's a small picture of that last day when all will be revealed before the Lord. That day when God judges all of the secrets of all men by Jesus Christ, according to Romans 2. And so we live now in this knowledge that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We are all exposed to the Lord. The Lord can read what's going on inside of us. And unlike the religious leaders who continued to harbor and dwell upon the secret evil thought, their, their evil and secret thoughts, we ought to pray with the psalmist. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. But Jesus didn't end there. He didn't, he didn't just simply set forth his knowledge of their evil thoughts but he confirmed his authority in healing the paralytic of his physical ailment as well. Look at verse 5. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Here's the thing. Both are easy to say, and both are impossible for humans to accomplish by mere words. It's easy to say, hey, your sins are forgiven, because there is no external or visible proof required to actually Prove that. You can't see the results of Christ's declaration of this man's forgiveness. But if Christ were to say, rise and walk, and the man didn't rise and walk, then you could dismiss him as a liar. But if the man does indeed rise and walk, when Jesus says, rise and walk, then you have to reckon with the fact that he just might very well be who he claims to be the one with authority on earth to forgive sins. And so Jesus confirmed his authority by healing the man externally as a sign that he had already healed the man internally 
by forgiving his sins. Look at verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your mat, and go home. And look at verse 7. And he rose and went home. That you may know, Jesus said. Or in other words, let me teach you. Everybody here listening, scribes, Pharisees, let me teach you about my authority. Let me demonstrate my authority to you by fixing what you can see. And when you see that I can fix the visible, know that I can also fix what you can't see. And this is good news. Our God forgives sin through Jesus. By faith in Christ, he makes us right with God. Christ does indeed possess authority on earth to forgive sins. He possesses ruling authority. He possesses the absolute power to forgive you, to forgive me, to forgive any and all who call on his name for salvation. At the command of Christ, the paralysis left the man. And as, he, as a result, he rose and he went home. Luke records the scene and he adds a little detail, saying, And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. This man experienced the total package, both a spiritual and a physical healing. In this man, we are given a glimpse into the ultimate results of Christ's work, a glimpse into our very own future. There is coming a day when each one of us who truly believes in Christ, there is coming a day when the trials and the labors and the difficulties of this life will come to a close. There is coming a day when you and I will pass on and our souls will go to be with God where he is. But that's not the end. There is also coming a day when the Lord will unite to our souls new, glorified, perfected, sinless bodies, free from the taint of sin, free from the consequences and repercussions of sin, bodies that will never again waste away from age or disease again, bodies with which we can enter the presence of the Lord to perform the most delightful and joyful act of honoring, praising, and exalting Him. This paralytic, in a small way, gives us a little peek into our upcoming reality. As his healed soul and his healed body give way to the glorification of the Lord. Faith in action, sins forgiven, accusations leveled, authority confirmed, and now finally, the people amazed. Look at verse 8. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, I have never witnessed the complete and immediate healing of anyone with such a terrible and desperate condition as this paralytic. But I hope that had I been there on this day, had I been among the crowds on this day, I would have responded with the glory, glorification of God like these men and women here did. I hope that I would have responded with the fear that they responded with. Because this is the common and natural response of humanity to the thought of God himself drawing near to us, to our sinful selves. 
The idea of the holy God in our presence drawing near to us as sinful people ought to raise in us a sense of alarm, a sense of unworthiness, a sense of fear, and a sense of awe. Of awe. It would seem that every time Jesus performed some miracle in the Gospel of Luke, the response of the people was fear and awestruck trembling. And that's because these crowds here knew that there was something different about Jesus. That God himself had given this Jesus some level of authority, some high degree of authority such as they had never seen before. And they, at least for the time being, glorified and honored God for everything that he had accomplished through Jesus. What a man this Jesus is. The one who possesses all authority. Authority over every single square inch of creation. Authority over the spiritual realms. This Man is the sovereign God of heaven and earth, come to earth to seek and to save the lost, to bring spiritual healing to the sick, to adopt those who turn to him in faith into the family of God, but not only to adopt them, but to make them heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with himself. Christ, the God-man, came to set you free from the law and the penalties of sin. He came to give you the gift of life and life to the full. He came to lavish the riches of his grace upon his children, to unite us to the Father in himself. This is our Savior. This is your Savior. This is our Lord. This Jesus with all authority to forgive the sin of any and all who turn to him in faith. This is our King who reveals the expansive and glorious love of God to us. A love that causes him to look at his children and say, take heart, my son and my daughter, your sins are forgiven. The Apostle John sums it up in closing quite well when he wrote that God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Father, we praise you and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you for the pronouncement that he made at the end of the Gospel of Matthew that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Lord, we praise you and we thank you that the the Lord of our lives, our Savior, is indeed the one who possesses authority over sickness and over creation and over the spiritual realms and most wonderfully possesses the authority to forgive us our sins when we come to him in faith and in trust. So Lord, I pray this week that the Holy Spirit would inspire in us a sense of encouragement, a sense of assurance, a sense of of courage, that we would take heart if we do truly believe in Jesus this morning because he has forgiven us our sins and there is no greater um, deed of love than that. 
We praise you, we honor you, and we thank you in our precious Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen.